Thank you for that. So we've got all the doors open that we can, but it's a pretty hot, isn't it? So we're trying to have a conversation with a minimal amount of movement. He's possibly. taking his jacket off. <laughs> I was amazed that he had it on in the first place. <laughs> so <clears throat> you started telling us a story just before we watched the film of your uh, of what happened to it and how it got a bit enlarged because the studios were interested in um, um, Alfonso Cuaron. Um, could you tell us a bit more about, just go, go back again so that we got an idea of how the film was developed? And Well, it, uh, it's based on a, a P.D. James uh, novel. In fact, she says that it's the only one that didn't make its advance. It was her, her single failure. Um, and um, uh, an American lady based in New York called Hilary Shore um, optioned it and uh, wanted to make, as I say, a, a small British art house movie. That's more or less how she started out. And she got the money to do that from a guy called Tony Smith, <coughs> um, who's a record producer and who fancied dabbling in film, and this seemed like a good idea to him. And by the time I got involved, uh, several years had elapsed where the, the film had been sort of spinning in outer space and not getting anywhere. And um, Mark Abraham and um, 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 Strike Entertainment expressed an interest in the movie if we could attach a, a, a serious director to it. At that point, um, almost by coincidence, Alfonso picked up on it and said this is the thing that he most wanted to do. And um, we found ourselves with a, a deal at, um, at Universal. We were still at that point trying to make... A, a film that didn't we didn't want to ever make a studio movie, and Alfonso certainly didn't want to do that. Having just done the Harry Potter, he wanted to um, he wanted to sort of go back to the. Imama so, what Tambien. was your budget when you took it to you know before you took it to Universal? Well, we were hoping initially to make it for the high thirties and you know low forties, something like that, which that's millions of dollars, uh, which is, was a small budget at that for for us. It's it a terrible is. thing to admit. <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't worry, it's all right. And uh, we ended up making the film for uh, just slightly under seventy million, which is, is still still pretty good, actually. We couldn't do that now. I mean, now it would be a different. We'd, we'd have to make it for the lower number, or perhaps a little, yeah. certainly under fifty. But um, Uni, Uni got involved because they wanted to court Alfonso. They wanted to to keep him fresh for stuff that they had. And this was a way of, of getting into bed with him. Um, as I say, I think they never really understood the material. They certainly didn't understand, those who read it didn't understand the book. Um, which I must admit, I, I didn't really understand the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was full of uh, religious allusions and it was, it was quite a, a dark book yeah. in that sense. So what happened was really Alfonso, this is a film made by Alfonso Cuaron, nobody else made this film. He, he was very much the architect of the movie and the vision was very much his um, and he grew this film out of, out of that book and out of the early scripts. So um, really the idea, what, what he wanted to try and do was to take the familiar, it was a kind of Hitchcockian idea to take the familiar and to make it unfamiliar. And I think he did that. I think, I think the London that you see in this film is not that far away from the London that we live in today. And, and one of the principles that we followed was um, what 
what was London like 20 years ago? Um, how different was it? So if we then swung that 20 years forward, how different will it be? And the answer was, in most things, much the same. Um, but there were, there were all these slightly odd things. 20 years ago, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't, you know, we didn't have all, all that kind of stuff. So what we tried to do was to create a London which had these things that were going on. And they were kind of thrown away in the movie. They were not meant to be overstated in any sense. It's just that, that all the things that we are dealing with now politically and socially, um, this is a possible outcome if we allow it to happen. So that, that's, that's one of the places that Alfonso wanted to, to, to bring to the screen. But it's also clear in a way that he and Lubetsky looked at some British, you know, some London movies, because there's, there's a kind of, I mean, it's in the casting too. Yeah. I don't know how, how often they watched uh, Hipcrest File. And... Yeah, the, the whole look of London, the whole dystopian kind of, um, I mean, the British film scene loved dystopian movies, you know, the, where things are all going wrong, but no one quite knows why. And that feel is very much um, uh, part of the movie, I think. There's a great sort of um, uh, tribute, I think, to the, mm. the tradition of British cinema, which is interesting. So to have two Mexicans making a quintessentially British film is kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, and 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 using Kane in a way that's very very culturally interesting too. That you do, you know is the most interesting thing he did for yeah. a long long time. Yeah, he was he was he brought with him the sixties. You know, he kind of dragged that in. Just yeah, give him a long wig and put him in that environment, you know. You're borderline pushing it, you know, it's sort of almost too much. Yeah. But, um, and Kane loved it. I mean, he, he, this was something he wanted to do, and he did it for really not a lot of money, mm. which is great. So, um, in terms of your task, I mean, obviously, on lots of different kinds of films, you've been different kinds of producer. Yeah. Uh, if we take a snapshot of this one, and I always ask producers to define their working day because they're so different. Yeah. Um, but on a film like this, so they'd been messing about for a long while. They couldn't put the thing together. Um, you came in to try and work out how it could actually be physically made. Yeah. Um, but by that point, they'd got some of their money. Yeah, they were underway, and they had a they had a, a property. You know, they had something. What where where I come in is it's what they call in banking circles the glue man. You know, you're the glue man. So I'm the glue man. I, I bring it all together and make sure that. I mean, people say to me, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm in charge of common sense. You know? That's if I want the conversation to stop. You know? um, but it's true, actually, because the studios will trust me to take something on. And if I make a, it's sometimes quite scary, if I make a promise, you know, if I say, yes, we can do this for X, then that's what I do. I'll make the film for X. And what I then try to do is to, to dance between art and money, uh, between culture and commerce. I'm, I'm the one that's sort of saying to the director, no, you can't do that, but how about we try this? <clears throat> and um, Alfonso, uh, to put it mildly, is a passionate man and very, very, very tough about the films that he's making and about the vision that he has. So that job on this film was, was particularly tough and most of the time Alfonso and I were really banging heads together um, because I had the un unfortunate task on a frequent, perhaps even daily basis of saying, no, you can't have it. Um, but I always respected the fact that he was pushing for what he believed in and what he felt the film absolutely had to have. 
And if he hadn't done that, and I've, I've made this kind of film as well, where you have a director going, oh, well, don't worry, I'll make, I'll make it work. What you end up with is the, the essential adversarial relationship that must exist between a director and a producer, the kind of parent, the mother-father kind of thing. That gets lost, and you end up with a kind of mushy, sort of nobody's-quite-in-charge situation. With this film, it was very, very clear that you know, Alfonso was in charge. And if Alfonso had a problem, he would come off the set and he'd stand and scream and shout and stamp his feet to make sure that he got what it was. And sometimes it was very, very small details, but they mattered to him. And um, my function in that is to, in a sense, protect him, but also not to indulge him. So I also had to interpret him to the crew because the crew would often be working for a long time trying to build something or put something together, some special effect or whatever, and Alfonso would just dismiss it. And you could see their morale dropping, but again, I would have to go and rather like Dr. Ruth, um, if you know who Dr. Ruth is in America, I would have to go around stroking everybody and think, they're there, there, it's okay, you know. It's all going to be fine, he's really great. Look at the stuff he's getting, you know. Um, well, normally I'm the sort of Damocles. I'm the one that goes in, if you don't... So it's very interesting. My role in this film was, was almost reversed from the normal, um, which I rather enjoyed, actually. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does, it does. Because, because your career is... is, is you, you start from... I mean, you know, I suppose your first credit is one of the most important things in modern British filmmaking. It's the first Bill Douglas yeah. film. Um, and, you know, it, it's impossible to imagine this school, Scottish cinema, um, you know, a, anybody else who wanted to make a trilogy, Terence Davis, impossible to imagine anything, anything at all without yeah. the Bill Douglas trilogy of films. So, yeah. in the sense, it's hardcore, high art. You're coming out of film school. Yeah. You're working with him. You were contemporaries here. Yeah, absolutely. We were here together. Yeah. And um, I, I came down to from, from Scotland. You know, the, you know the song. I just come down from the Isle of Skye. I'm no very bright. And all that. Anyway, that, that was me. I came down from Scotland, thinking I knew it all, and of course I knew absolutely nothing. And I found myself um, surrounded here by a very international crowd and feeling a little lost. I, I heard a Scottish accent. I thought, oh, this is great. And I, I tuned in on Bill, and of course Bill was a, a filmmaker of extraordinary torment. You know, he. I mean, I always have had and will always have a love for my native country. Bill, Bill's relationship with Scotland was one of hatred. I mean, he hated Scotland. And the only reason that he would go back to Scotland is to make the thing that would expiate his demons, you know, because I was quite innocent in this. I, I decided to kind of be his producer, and we, we went off to make my childhood, and it was absolutely a sheer, sheer hell. I mean, the, the worst, mm. most difficult production experience I've ever had in my life, or none. But again, the same principle applied. We were dealing with a man who had this incredible exorcism to go through, and film was the process that he needed to do this with. And uh, as much as he could, he was trying to recreate real things, real events, real people. Um, and I'd, I'd never even it never even dawned on me that filmmaking could involve such pain, you know. <laughs> but out of it came, you know, one of the one of our arguably. Scotland's possibly only pure Scots movie. It's not. It's not about tartan and um, stags on the hill. It's not about Glasgow hard men. It's it's about real people living a real life. And in that sense, it joined the river of the great river of world cinema. It, it joined Path of Panchali, 
uh, the Apu trilogy, it joined Le Quatre Sans Coup. It it was instantly not Scottish, it was international. So then you'd had that appalling experience and you thought, right, I'm a producer now. No. (laughs) I retreated and and decided that I had a lot to learn. And so I I worked in all kinds of... um, I made anything and everything. Anything that came along. And living in Scotland, that meant making documentaries for brick companies and and whiskey uh, films. Whiskey companies were the only ones that had the money to, to give to filmmakers. So we would dream up films about whiskey, which were really about... The Celtic Twilight, or you know, it's it all a bit sad really looking back at it. But it was very good for me because it meant I, I could learn <coughs> something that no film school, not even the London film school, could could teach, which is is how you make mistakes. You know, you learn a lot by making mistakes. And in those films, it didn't really matter if you made a mistake; you were you were um, you could survive it. And um, so that that meant that when Bertrand Tavernier suddenly turned up in Glasgow. Uh, I felt confident enough to say, listen, I can help you here. And we made a film called uh, La Moron Direct, which is English title is Death Watch. Um, and I, I basically line produced that for, for Bertrand. And that got me started. Putnam then wanted to make uh, Chariots of Fire, and uh, he and I knew each other, and he asked me if I could get involved with that. And you know, the rest is history. Mm. It's interesting because uh, I always say to people that there's broadly three directions in which you arrive in producing. So you, you're one of the sort of marketing and distribution people that's got thousands of dictionaries of cinema that's to be found in a sort of film festival screening, queuing up. Or you're one of these legal and financial types is in a nightclub around the corner, kind of stirring your cocktail, talking about percentages. Or you're a person who can live in a caravan and you've got lots of waterproof gear and like a Swiss Army knife on a on a <laughs> lanyard at the end of your pocket, um, and in a way, um, uh, this film school doesn't produce that many producers. Partly because um, there's a sense that, that that the world is about the marketing and the legal guys, rather than those people who've gone through line production who understand line production very well. Yeah. So that makes you quite a rare yes, piece in, in the production uh, world right now. Yeah. What's it like dealing with when you've got? Because you've always got five other people who are called producer, yeah, you know, somewhere on the credits who've never actually been in a muddy field at all. They no. come directly from a nightclub. Yeah, what's it like? Well, you have to have a square up if if you've got a cluster of of um, cluster. The proper word is a clusterfuck <laughs> of producers, and um, the clusterfuck of producers is a problem because they all want to feel that they've got a job and they they have a, a purpose in being there. They may have raised the money or they may have had the original idea or whatever it is. But they mustn't get in the way of the process of making this film, which essentially is a kind of almost militaristic thing. You have to you have to be able to function very effectively, and um, I've had quite a few run-ins with fellow producers where I've had, I mean I, I like to think that I have no ego at all. That the job I do dies with with the film being made. That I, I've made the film. That's fine. I don't I don't want any publicity. I don't want to be interviewed by anybody. I just love the process of making films. So when someone gets involved trying to sort of um, uh, build themselves up in some way, I, it, it goes right against the grain for me, and I have to deal with it, usually on a one-to-one, quiet-level, uh, sort of Glaswegian discussion. So, see you. <laughs> um, and uh, that either works or it doesn't. 
I have to say, Hillary on, on, on Children and Men was fantastic. She was really great. I thought Hillary would want to would want to climb into it and be the director's confidant and so on. But um, she was great, and she stood back. Mark and Eric uh, Newman, similarly, they stood back. So that we, we basically gave Alfonso one corridor to come down, and I was in that corridor. And if he tried to phone around me or above me or whatever, he would always get pushed back so that he had to deal with me. And that, that meant that we had a very strong, um, tempestuous but fruitful uh, relationship. And that's the order which the studios work to very much. So you wouldn't get executive producers or studio executives kind of talking to the director and undermining you in everyday life on any of these. Uh, I mean, you're just finishing the, uh, the A-team. For instance, yeah. Well, that's a, that was a very different kind of, and it's complete opposite. The team that's coming out in a couple of weeks was was just. I mean, I, I made Wanted before. These two films were made by somebody, and, and nobody knows who it is. I mean, it's 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 a peculiar hybrid of modern uh, blockbuster filmmaking, and it becomes a sort of corporate process, um, like some mad Ouija board, you know, where everyone's gathered around and the movie comes out. And in both cases, Timur Bekman-Betov and, and uh, Joe Carnahan did a fantastic job, and don't get me wrong, as directors, but they were so prevailed upon by the studios. In the case of this film, um, the studios, A, they didn't really understand it, so they didn't know what questions to ask. And secondly, they were so scared of Alfonso, because <laughs> Alfonso would really rip them off if they, if they asked him a dumb question. You know, he was very electrified. So they basically would make phone calls to me or to Mark um, Abraham and say, uh, is it all going okay? And they say, yeah, it's going fine, we're on, on schedule. And, and then they'd leave us alone. It's rather nice, actually. So like once I made a film in Calcutta, City of Joy, and we, we had absolutely no interference from the studio. Why? Because nobody wanted to go to Calcutta. Nobody wanted to be on the plane to go and so nobody made the phone calls, you know. So it's quite nice to be in those situations. But in, in the meantime, you have, in the last 10 years, you've developed films where you are um, nominally the producer all the way through yeah. in every one of the producer's jobs. Yeah. But is that, is that, that's a sort of parallel activity to being somebody who's brought in on a big film yeah. once a year kind of it's thing. Very that's how you balance your... It's a very, very different process. I mean, what you're doing then is... Um, well, what I find is that people don't want me to be doing that. So the studios go, well, why are you doing this? You know, and I say, well, that's what I want to do. Um, and it's very difficult yes. because the two jobs are actually very, very different indeed. And they want you on tap as the sort of they most trusted line producer in They want you to be the man that will take responsibility. Yeah. And, and then here I am talking about you know, the, the, the themes and the mythic the undertow of, of, of a story and they're saying, yeah, but you, you do time and money, you know. <laughs> so it, it's it's interesting, and it's I'm, I'm not. I mean, I find developing scripts is is a horrific process, and it's a it's a desperately lonely process. Um, but it is where the it is actually where the real value of everything is, because if you can get a if you can get a script that is is really worked out and you've you've solved all the problems, if you like, in that script, then you really do have a a, a valuable property. The problem, more often than not, and I, I read a lot of scripts, is, is that very, very few of them, I have to say to everyone sitting here, very few of them are really worked out. 
as a lot of people believe they've worked it out, they believe that they've taken it as far as it needs to go, they haven't, you know. And if you look at something like Amadeus, you know, famously Peter Schaeffer wrote 47 drafts of Amadeus, and the result is clear on the screen. You know, the story is well told, everything's been thought through, is this necessary, you know. <clears throat> so doing that process and not having a lot of money, you know, and I don't have a lot of money, is, is quite challenging. And every so often, somebody will come up and offer me a lot of money to take over their film and help them out of trouble, and you sit there and wonder, well, should I stand by my principles or should I survive? And survival, wins. more often than not, wins. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to throw it out, and then I'm going to come back later. So people got questions they're dying to ask about this film and, or anything. Yeah, you mentioned before it started that this film was seen as a failure, a commercial yeah. failure. Could you elaborate on that? Um, well, you know, everyone um, and erroneously take box office as the kind of uh, the method of measuring success. But if you did that, the worldwide box office for this movie was just didn't quite make seventy million. So that's the gross. So the the gross of the movie theatrically worldwide was the same as the cost of the movie. And if you know anything about the arithmetic of Recruitment. That's a long, long way from even break-even. When I mean, you have to take into account the, the money when you spend a movie on the money you spend on the movie is a loan, so it's carrying interest, and that's like a lead weight on a balloon that's pulling the whole thing down. And unless in the in the space of like the first four to six weeks of a film's life, um, you get well beyond the, the point of just. I mean, certainly remake, matching your budget is definitely not. So we were, from Universal's point of view, we were a complete failure. Privately, over a drink, the executives would say it was a really interesting film and they thought it was the best thing that Clive Owen had ever done and isn't Alfonso a fantastic talent? But corporately, it was an embarrassment they should never have had anything to do with. How do you feel that, that the marketing campaign failed or how come it didn't reach its audience or why that it didn't do what people thought it would do. Well, uh, in a way, I'd, I'd throw that question back to you guys because obviously I know what what we were trying to make and I, I, you know, I'm so invested in it. it. It usually takes me about 15 years after a film has been completed to actually begin to see it as a separate thing. So it's still full of all the, the pain and the many glories and the compromises and maybe we shouldn't have cast that person in that part and... and so on and so forth. So it's, it's hard for me to answer that question. But I would say as a general rule, uh, and this perhaps is a good example of it, the, the answer to that question is script. You know, I think if this film is a masterpiece of filmmaking, you know, the mise-en-scene, the sense of the actual creating of the, of the minute and the instant, you're really going to see this kind of quality of work. But the question of why it didn't cross over to a wide popular audience is, I think, more to do with the way that we told the story, the order of the information, and the way we dispatched the information. That's the, only way, that's, that's, that's the only thing I can think about it. Obviously, when you're dealing with a, a grim subject, you know, there's, there's a whole section of society will just not want to be part of it. I made The Killing Fields with David Putnam years ago, and we found out through market research that just the, the name of the film kept a big, big sector of the audience away. 
who didn't want anything with the name Killing in it, particularly in North America. I'm proud of this film. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I don't consider it a failure, but I understand that it is a failure in terms of, of the, the commercial side of it. Thank you. <laughs> um, for a young filmmaker starting out, what advice would you give in terms of raising funds for a film? Um, well, uh, I think, and it's easy, it may appear easy for me to say this, I think young filmmakers do tend to think about raising funds for films. Um, and it's never more difficult now than it's ever been. I think you need to think about making the film and, and finding solutions which may not be, I will get all the money, then I will spend all the money and I'll make my film, but I will make the first act of the film, then go and show it to somebody who might put enough money in to, to pay for the second act. We were just talking earlier about Roger Corman, <clears throat> and I, I, I don't know if you know Roger Corman's work, but Roger Corman was a f- fantastic, still is, in, in his late 70s or whatever age he is, he's still making films. And Roger Corman was fascinating because he gave a start to people like um, uh, Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola. Um, and th- what he did was he, he decided when he was going to make a film, that film was going to get made, one way or the other. Even if the film, at the end of the day, was a bit cheap, and looked a bit odd, you know, it didn't matter because he got the film made. And so what happened was talent would come to him and would be prepared to work with him for nothing because they knew that their movie would get made. So writers, you know, Jonathan Sales wanted to be with him and all sorts of people. And, they, and the, the movies got to an audience, imperfect though they were, and the audience most of the time would go, yeah, I quite enjoyed that. You know, but occasionally, one of his films would get through and, and new talent was born, and the careers were born, and so on. Jack Nicholson, those kind of people. Interesting man, Roger Corman. So as I was saying, I think, he's, I think he was a filmmaker of the internet age, but he was born 50 years too early. And, and the, the, the approach to film now has to be different. And I, I, I can assure you, I'm, I'm finding it, big names are, are bigger names than me are finding, are finding it very, very difficult now to get movies made. <coughs> Significant talents. So we have to find a new way of telling stories. Um, so there's no, coming back to your initial question about where you find money, the odd thing is there's plenty of money out there. But it's just finding the rationale that will allow that money to feel safe in backing you. And one of the things you have to do is to make things for as little as possible. And don't be afraid, certainly in your early years, of making something a bit rough. You know, If it's really heartfelt, passionate, good performances and above all a good story, one that really takes you by surprise, then, then you've got a chance. Do you think the internet is a good way for filmmakers to show their work or do you think... I don't think it's good or bad, it is. And, it's, and it's, it, it gives you a, a distribution system. You know, you can get to a, whether they pay or not is another matter, but it's something, you know, if, if, you can, if you can build up your name, if you like, through the internet... Um, and people start to say, oh, yeah, and I like her movies. And if you, once you can start to build up a, a kind of blog mentality where people are tuning in to what you're trying to do, um, then I think you've got a chance of, of um, going on to something bigger. Thanks. You've worked with some pretty great directors. How much do you go out your way to make that happen? And also... How much do you see yourself as a creative producer as opposed to enabling directors? 
Well, uh, only one person makes a film. Unless you're making a big studio blockbuster. Um, and that's the director. The writer provides the director with, with the story and script and the director then takes it on. And one would say the editor then becomes the final writer in the film and the film gets made. So, so the, you know, I, I choose to work with, with directors that I admire. Um, I have a couple of times worked with directors that I... Well, certainly after the films were made, I didn't admire. Um, and I realised that, uh, you know, in a way I'm, I, I see myself as somebody who would have loved to have been a director. And there's a lot of me that kind of has... You know, I, I, I love filmmaking, I love world cinema, I love watching films from all sorts of parts of the world and from all times. But I, I know that I don't have that unreasonable thing that you need to, if you're going to direct. Um, I'm, I'm just a bit too reasonable. So but I you like have directed. You've directed exercises in this building, right? I have, yeah, and I, I directed... Yeah, please, bury, bury them. Um, all, of those, all of those exercises, I, did, I have directed stuff, and I, I looked at it, and everyone's very kind about it which is like the worst thing. I mean, you'd like them to almost say, that was shit, you know, but they, they say, yeah, yeah, it was really quite good, you know. <laughs> and that's death. You can't live like that, you know, certainly not in film games. So, yeah, I've worked with some, some very, very um, interesting people, yeah. Did you say that the people that you work have been the best directors are always a little bit mentally ill? There's always something there. They're not quite normal. I think they're not quite normal, whether it's ill or not. <laughs> Maybe in the heat of battle you think they're ill. But, no, I think it's that they see... You know, there's there's a, a great story that I love about Sam Golden. When he, um, is, uh, he always lived in rented accommodation. This, by the way, is a story that answers your question. Um, <laughs> he, lived, he lived in rented accommodation for years because... Like a lot of, of uh, post-war, uh, 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 pre-war, in fact, in his case, but the, the Jews wanted to be able to move very quickly, and he, he always had the instinct to move very quickly. So don't, don't lock yourself down. And even when he was very successful, Sam Goldwyn always preferred to stay in rented accommodation. And when it was manifestly plain that he, if he never worked again, he was going to be wealthy for the rest of his life, his wife, who was a remarkable woman, said, Sam, I think we should have a home. You know, not, not a rented home. And he said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, no, 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 but really, you know, we live in Pacific Palisades, but really look across the canyon there. He said, there's a, there's a plot of land for sale. Why don't we, we build our home there, you know? And he went, ah, for Christ's sake. Okay, okay, do it, do it, do it, you know? So for two years, checks would come across his desk and, and uh, he would say, what's this? So his assistant would say, oh, this is your wife's project. Oh, Christ, I'm going to you. And he would sign the checks and off it would go. And he never inquired about what she was doing. And he never, certainly never went to see what she was doing until two years after he'd done the offer, Christ's sake, do it. Instead of his driver waiting for him at the end of the day, there was she sitting in, the, in her car waiting for him. And he said, what are you doing here? And she said, Samuel, I've come to take you home. And uh, he went, oh, oh. And what she'd done was she, he, he traditionally left Pacific Palisades at 5.30 in the morning and she had the equivalent of a film crew hiding around the corner, waiting. And as he left, they all moved in on the house and they literally moved everything from the rented house to this brand new house that she'd built up in Coldwater Canyon. And so she now took him up to Coldwater Canyon, drove in through the gates, the house is still there, 
landscape gardens, the whole thing was just perfect. And he was blown away. He couldn't believe it. He was, you know, driving. And she took him right into the public areas and showed him this. And, and he stood and he said, look, oh, my God, look, you've got that painting. That's beautiful. And the light. And, the, and the, oh, wonderful. look at this. And he, he was so impressed by everything she'd done. And then she took him upstairs to the, to the private rooms. And the thing that he'd always wanted all his life was a private uh, wardrobe and bathroom. It was the thing he had. So she had designed the big family bathroom and then on either side of his and hers wardrobe. And she stood outside all that and she said, Samuel, you've always wanted this and I'm going to give it to you. And here it is, it's your private dressing area, wardrobe. And you know, I don't know, thank you, thank you. And she stood back, she said, I will never go in there, that's sure. And he went in and she listened and she heard him and she saw all his suits all lined up. And he was like, oh, it's beautiful, look at, oh my goodness, and a special place for my shoes. And, and she was listening to this, listening to this. And he went deeper and deeper in until he was in the little bathroom in the, in the, and she heard him running the water. And then she heard, Oh, for Christ's sake, there's no soap in the soap dish. <laughs> Supposedly true. And the point of that is the people who make a big difference, and particularly directors, are the ones who, in spite of all the good and all the great achievements, they will still see and be tormented by what is not right. And that's, that's a difficult thing. I mean, I'm not like that. I don't think I'm like that. I'm always a bit pleased, you know. Hey, look, we staged Gargamella, you know, for Oliver Stone. We staged the great battle of Gargamella. It's pretty good, you know. <laughs> and Oliver said, yeah, but then, you know, and he's not happy. And, it, and he wants it changed and he wants it bettered. And, that's, and that is, that's what you need. If you're sitting there feeling pleased with what you're doing, then there's something far wrong. Rather long-winded way of answering your question, but a good story, isn't it? It's a very good story. It's somebody who really can, can pitch a story. Somebody at the back, though. Yeah, um, first of all, thank you very much for making this film. I've never really seen anything like it, and I love to watch it. Um, you talked a little bit about dancing between the art and, I guess, the practical or the, the business mm. side of things. And then what I really love about this film is the, the storytelling, and in particular, the photography is so daring... And I was wondering what, from your point of view, it was like talking with the director and hearing what he and, uh, and the DOP wanted to do. Because um, the results on screen don't look like you said no to too much, to be honest. I mean, they look like he had a lot to work with. He did get a lot. No, he did. But he wanted more. And the thing is, it's always a value judgment. You know, It's a cost-value debate all the time. Does it really make a difference if we blow that other building up, you know? Can we do without that? Can we do it's much more than people? Certainly, film students never realise the extent to which um, so-called big filmmakers have to go through the the grinder about is it really important that we see out the window? Can we not do it against the wall? You know, but with this film, I mean the 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 thing, the most distinctive thing about this film in in the technical terms is the are the long takes, and particularly the one that starts with. Um, Clive uh, going, trying to go to sleep in the car and then you, you roll on and the whole thing goes through and back she gets shot we carry right on and it's all one shot through to the point where the police get killed and then we're, we're out <coughs> and um, for a producer that 
is that's a hell. That's a fresh hell from hell, you know, because, I mean, producers love, for instance, we love coverage. We love, you shoot, you shoot your scene, get your master, and then go in and do the close-ups. Why? Because we know that if we're in the shit in the cutting room and it's pacing slow, you can cut into the close-up and tighten it all up. So having a developing master shot is, is, is producer almost bordering on incompetence. But it was such, it, it was so central to what Alfonso was trying to do and Chivo helping him, our DOP, um, that it became absolutely built into the obligation that we had as filmmakers, that there was no cop-out. You see, what, what Alfonso wanted to do was, uh, back in the 60s, uh, Jean-Luc Godard very famously said that he wanted to destroy cinema. And everybody went, what? what, what how can that be? You know, greatest living uh, avant-garde French filmmaker wants to destroy cinema. But what he meant by that was that cinema had become formulaic and that the audience had become inured to a kind of process which meant your choices, your lens choices, the way you cut, were all more or less formulaic. And that separated the audience from the content and therefore from the purpose of the movie. You with me? So what, what Alfonso was trying to do, and I think to some extent he succeeded, is that he wanted, particularly in a world where we're so used to seeing astonishing news footage, where there's a sense of reality, there's a sense in which the audience participates directly in the experience that Clive Owen is going through. Um, and in order to do that, he, he wanted to shoot long, sustained shots at certain moments, emotionally important moments. He wanted to stay mid-lens. He didn't want to go into close-up. He didn't want to interfere with the, the relationship between the audience and, and what was happening on the screen to Clive. And that, that also went with Clive. He, was, Clive would, he, he wouldn't rehearse Clive. He would, he would keep Clive completely wrong-footed, literally. If you, if, if you think about it through the film, Clive's feet are, are a theme all the way through the film. And, and Alfonso would say things to the, to the costume department, give him a slightly smaller pair of shoes for this take. So that, you know, when he, he, he smashes Peter Mullen with the car battery and the, and the door, and then he runs and he stumbles and he's kind of, you know. What, what Alfonso wanted was Clive to be us, you know. He's not a movie star. He's got the looks of a movie star, but he's a schmuck. He's, he's like, he doesn't want to get involved, he doesn't want to know... He doesn't care, but now he's having to care. And part of that is the breakdown of his, his veneer, if you like. So, so all of these different strands, and there were many others, were moving into this central idea that we destroy cinema. And that's, that, I think, has worked. So when I, when I came up as producer and said, well, maybe we should just be, just be a bit careful here, because some of these takes were um, the only take we'd, we'd, we'd do in one day. And I'd have the studio saying, What's, what, you got, what are you doing? You know, how can you, normally you'd shoot like 12 or 15 setups. And um, on several occasions, we would just shoot one setup. And I, I found myself saying, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. <laughs> Does that answer anything? Yes. There's a question there. Uh, you said that the problem of this film was script. Uh, were you aware of the, this problem before it started? No. Or after the editing? So we, if, we, if we'd been aware of it, we would have dealt with it. It's a very difficult thing. You become blinded by, by the process. You become, 
it, it's perfectly understandable. You know, we all do. You, you get involved and you believe in it, and you, of course, you, above all, you understand it. You know why that scene is the way it is, because you read the script not once or twice, but you read it ten times. So you know why he looks out the window. But when you actually put it together with an audience for the first time, you realise, oh, wait a minute, they didn't read the script. So, so they're now puzzled. Why did you look out the window? You see what I'm saying? So the, the process of, of monitoring a script has to be very, very carefully done, and there has to be a, an enormous separateness. I mean, one of the great strengths of Putnam, actually, David Putnam, was David never got involved. He did not like line producing. He did not want to be in the day, day-to-day battlefield. That's why he and I got on particularly well, because I love all that stuff. Um, but he could stand back, and he could come in and say, I don't understand why you're doing all this, because it doesn't work. And he could see that when we couldn't, because we were there. So, I mean, if we'd known it was a problem, we would definitely have changed it. Nobody, even terrible films, are made by people who believe that the film might be good. Has anyone seen Troll 2? <laughs> I must, I'm trying to see that. It's supposed to be great. Apparently the director, the Italian director, he's really still the only person in the world now fighting for the, someone to understand his film. <laughs> God bless him. Um, there's a question there, and I've got a supplementary on to ask. Can you tell us what are the qualities that you think you would need to, to be a producer? You mean me? Or one? N- one. one well, would... Yeah, what would one need to have? In their character, their personality. They have to be charming, brilliant, uh, humorous. No. I think essentially, um, it's a, a, a good question. I think essentially you have to be able to deal with dichotomy. By which I mean that you have to understand why this film needs to be made. You have to understand it, you have to believe in that. But at the same time, you also have to deal with. A, a terrible world of people who want to measure everything and quantify it and reduce risk. Um, and, and that world is like another hemisphere of your brain. Um, you can call yourself a producer and be purely creative. I don't think that's producing. You can call yourself a producer and be purely uh, line management or accountancy. I don't think that's producing. I think the producing is where you take responsibility across the whole obligation, if you like, of making the film, which basically I describe as straddling the art and money divide. If you take a film, it's a film crew, um, you can divide the film crew into those who, when they're in trouble, will run into the art cave, production designer, the, the director. If they're in trouble and they think the film's not going right, they'll become even more artistic and they'll, 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 give, they'll hang the budget, you know. We've got to get this right, we've got to get this right. There's also a whole constituency of people in, who are making the film who would do the opposite, who would go run into the money cave. Well, it doesn't matter, you know, yeah, I know it's in the script, but we've just got to shoot this in one day. And literally the only person, often, who straddles both those things is the producer. And the producer is the one that says, on this occasion, money wins, you know. Or on this occasion, let's burn some money and make sure we get the moment. So, so I think in that sense, the producer has, is an interesting, much misunderstood um, 
personality in filmmaking, particularly outside of Hollywood. In Hollywood, it's a little more easy to understand. So, would I be right to say you'd really have to be good at people management and really of course. N- not have a short fuse because you're dealing with so many different characters with with their different agendas. And you have to be, you have to, really, psychology, my God, psychology, psychology, psychology. I mean, uh, at one point, Alfonso said to me, he said, um, we had a a whole big thing about something, I've forgotten what it was, and uh, I turned to, to, having finished the conversation, and turned and he said, hey man, hey man, he said, said, "Um, I, I just want you to, to know that I really appreciate you still being here. <laughs> and I, somewhat cruelly, I said to him, Alfonso, uh, I'm here but not because of you, I'm here because of me. And, and I could see that, that that got through to him. And what I meant by that is, I'm not here just to be the guy that you can whip or the guy that you can fight with. I'm here as an independent mind that's standing alongside you doing everything in my power to give you everything I can within the time and money obligations that we've taken, that gave us the opportunity to make the film. So dealing with the psychology of people, from people who are um, monsters in in one way, right down to people who are perhaps too timid, people who've got talent but don't know they've got it. Um, A lot of the time I'm the one that sits down with the actors and uh, commiserates with them and sort of makes them feel better. Um, quite good fun, really. Can I just ask you a question about sort of? Because I've I've only ever made low budget movies, so I, you, you could get all the you know my sort of seventeen feature credits, and it could be one reel of uh, an Ian Smith film. Um, so so what fascinates me is when you say you're saying no to Alfonso Cuarón. I often say, and I believe it, that unless you've rewritten a film because you don't have enough money, you'll never find out what the script's about. So you've actually got to have not enough, otherwise you can't really set any of your priorities. So in a creative way, what you're really doing with that film, because the film doesn't feel as though it's, you know, a um, sort of Ridley Scott science fiction film, and that's what I like about it Mm. so much. But actually when you're saying no to him, that's really the contribution you're making. Yes, that's a higher level... But it's the same deal. It's just Absolutely. happening between 60 million and 80 million. Absolutely. There's no film, I mean, big films, small films. It's a, it, to me, really genuinely, it's an artificial definition. And it's one that obscures the truth, which is that whatever size of film you're making, I mean, there are some that are just excessive beyond, but I've, I've never had anything to do with that. But whatever size of film I've ever made, I've always been fighting for the pennies, and I've always been fighting for the, the cost value balance. And, and I do believe that is part of the creative process. I think that there's a, it, there's a point where you say, we can find a better way of doing this. And somehow or other, and I can't explain it, it's a kind of close encounters situation, that that creates a level of analysis and, and awareness of what you're trying to do that yeah. becomes very, very healthy. That you're not sitting there saying, well, we've written, you know, the army comes over the mountains and down into the valley and conquers the thing, you know. You say, well, why does it? Is it really important to have the army do that? Why can't we? Um, and that debate is, is, can only be healthy. And comes back to, to your question about script. It causes that process causes you to actually analyse the very script itself in detail. I mean, the script is not just taken as like a slab of stuff. It's a very, very detailed series of things. And quite often we're down to a particular word. You know, a particular. Do we really need? Does he have to run? Can he not? You know. It's, it's a very odd 
uh, fertility, if you like, that interface between art and money. But are you in some way trapped by being so good at that, that you're so relied upon? I mean, would you like to make European low-budget films if you could afford to? I have to be very careful in front of this audience. <laughs> I'm very interested in the idea of making films in a different way, I have to say. I really just ask for trouble now. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, the truth is at a certain point uh, we, we have to take stock of what we do and... and you know, I've been doing what I do kind of long enough, and I, I would I would like to find another way to uh, justify my existence. But having said that, I don't know I don't really know what that is. I don't know quite how to to do that. There's a few questions here. Do you think that it's because the film breaks away from formula, and yet tries to fit into a very formulaic system, being yeah. Hollywood, yeah. that this idea of Failure is what you, you've had to deal with with the film. I, I mean, I think it's a very successful film in that it does exactly what it's supposed to do. Yeah. You know, it conveys a story very powerfully. And when you compare, you know, the intention of this story and what this story is about and, say, Avatar, yeah. which is conveying a similar kind of message mm -hmm. but fits in mm -hmm. to, you know, the formulaic yeah. system and succeeds. Yes. You know, I mean, I think you're right that... We, we were trying to, to reach for something special, but uh, and part of that was a sort of love-hate relationship with the studio, who were actually very kind all the time, to be honest. They were never really horrible, and I've seen them be horrible. Um, and I suppose what we wanted to do on one hand was to repel them, and on another hand to attract them. We wanted them to... We sort of wanted them to have a successful film, you know what I mean? But we wanted it to be a, a dangerous word. We wanted it to be pure. You know, we wanted it to be good filmmaking about a subject that you wouldn't normally be able to tell. I mean, if you pitch this idea just cold to a studio, they would you'd be out in your ear. But again, as I say, it's because Alfonso was so highly regarded that they were willing to basically sacrifice, you know, seventy million dollars and see what happens. I don't think they do that now. Another question there. Uh, what advice would you give a young director starting out looking for a producer? Because I have a project which I've got some funds, uh, partly shot in India, and most of it's shot in London, and I've managed to raise some funds for the India shoot, which we thought, and I've got a great team together because I'm quite good at putting things together. So, <laughs> so uh, before, before, you, before you go on, I have to say one thing, because okay. you're going to get a proper answer to this question, of okay. course. But I have to say one thing, which is that the absolute rule, as we know, because, we are, because we're experienced and professional people in this room, is that the one Leave thing you alone. don't do is you don't pitch. I wasn't... Um, no, she I know you're not. I know you're not. I'm only teasing you. He's just taking the opportunity. Because all of us. And he's just said, well, you know, I'm sort of interested in low-budget <laughs> films. So we're in a danger zone as far as Ian's concerned. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just thought I'd mention it, but carry on. I'm okay. sorry. Where was I? How do you find okay. the producer? So I've got some money, and I'm doing... A, I'm a, it seems I'm producing it, you know, but I want to sort of step back and really concentrate on the directing. Mm -hmm. And I've got a few people interested here as well now mm -hmm. coming on. So I'm just trying to struggle because it's my second project. And the first one was very, very small. Mm -hmm. <coughs> this might be the one that would put me on the, on the map, which I'm hoping. But trying to decide which one to go. So is there something that the questions I could ask, I mean, from these producers who have been to film school and uh, London Film School, National Film School, and they have done short films, but have what sort of, who do I choose? I'm kind of... Sort of well, I think the answer way. can only be a very personal choice from, from you, which is, right. I don't think there's, there's a right or wrong in this. 
What you need is someone who understands what you are trying to do and is prepared to defend and protect and, and look after the, the outskirts of what you're doing. I mean, apart from that, you are the producer, whether you like it or not, because you're the one that cares most about this baby. So in that sense, you, can never, you can't give your baby over to someone else. Later on in your career, when you've made a name for yourself and you've, you've got a bit more collateral around you, then, then you can have a slightly more, as I was describing it, the mother-father thing with a producer. It becomes a slightly different thing. But when you're, when you're still sort of building up your, your name and your presence, in real terms, you are the producer. So what you probably need is someone who can actually look after the nuts and bolts, someone who can actually follow through on making sure that there's no screw-ups, that things happen when they're supposed to happen, and that that side of it. Is, is if you find that person and that person also appreciates and understands the delicacy of what you're trying to make, then you've got a producer. Okay. Um, I mean, at the moment, I've got kind of people who have just done shorts. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I've just had a meeting with a big production company in the UK, and they're very keen to back me. But he's a big producer. Yeah. And, but he said he would like to do, take me on a development deal. Mm. Uh, and develop my script with their own mm. writer. Yeah. But I'm, I just want, I've got enough funds, I could make it, but I'm, so I'm just trying to toy. Should I go with a big producer who's got more experience and done a few features? They're backed by the UK Film Council and Film 4. So, or should I just so go with somebody who is starting out and got more passion? But what does the little voice in your head tell you in the middle of the night? I tell you, honestly, that little voice, if you, and it's the hardest thing to hear that little voice. And so often I've, I've ignored it. And it's only later when things have gone cockeyed that I realised that I actually knew this was going to happen. But I didn't listen to the little voice. So I think it, it, I think that's a piece of advice. Don't worry about people's lack of experience. You know, the truth is everybody's lacking experience. And um, I think it's much more about their energy and their... If they've got that and they're fighting on your behalf and that you're not, you're not coming into somebody else's world, quite well. that's always the problem with big production companies and big hotshot producers, you know. It's, in a way, it's quite a good feeling to have somebody producer obviously getting interested in your project. You get ex I'm quite excited. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm just a little scared at how big they'll make it. And it can be problematic later. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily, but it can be. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, we'll take... Uh, sort of one or two more short questions and then we're going to be so hot that we'll want to just go next door and drink, drink something, I think. So there's one there. Hello. That boom might get somebody in the eye. Be careful. Can you um, <laughs> talk a bit about the fountain yeah. and the Aronofsky project? Because that's... Um, I'm a big fan of his and I, was, I spent a weekend watching Requiem and yeah. the director's commentary and everything and... I, I really wanted to come today because because um, you were involved with that, but yeah. it was very much his only his kind of big failure, and that's when the momentum really stopped for him. Yeah, it's another magnificent failure. Yeah, when it's a, it's it's one of the, one of the more, I'm the proudest of that film than I am about almost everything else, because Darren was going to make that film for eighty million with Warner Brothers, shoot it down in Australia with Brad Pitt instead of Hugh Jackman. And uh, they had a big falling out um, and part of the company and the whole thing collapsed. And Darren, being the man he is, he's a lovely, fantastic guy, Darren. He's, he's now British, by the way. He lives in, in Primrose Hill. Um, and he, 
he persisted to keep going, having having collapsed, you know, the film having collapsed. He he, he persisted, persisted. And he went to Arnon Milchin of uh, uh, New Regency. Arnon's a, an interesting, very very super wealthy guy, and Arnon basically got his production guy to call me and say, would you meet with Darren Aronofsky and see if this film could be made? I am not prepared to spend any more than $35 million. Um, so I got on a... They sent me an air ticket, and I got on a plane and flew to New York and met Darren. And we sat down, and, and I said to him, do you really, really want to make... This is basically what I said. Do you really, really want to make this film? Yes. I said, are you prepared to make it for half or less than half of what you had before? Yes. I said, so what that means, this is just him and me, what that means is that every day and every minute of the day we're going to be discussing, is that strictly necessary? Can we do it this way? Can we do it that way? Do it this way, do it that way. And he took that on right at the beginning. And at that point I then said, okay, we can do this. We'll somehow or other make that film for that money. And Arnon said, okay, you're green lit, go and do it. And Darren never ever backstepped from that. I mean, he... He was always prepared to hear me say, do we need to see the, that wall? Can we shoot it so that we block off this? And he would often come up with solutions that were, more often than not, he, I would come up with an idea and he'd come up with an even better idea that sometimes saved even more money. And at the end of it, he did me uh, a great compliment in that he said, he said, I got the movie I wanted and I dreamed of. And, uh, and that was the absolute music to my ears. You know, and I would do anything for Darren. I mean, we, we've been talking about various things for the future. And I think he's, I think he's an amazing, amazing, amazing filmmaker. And the fountain is so rich in its, you know, if, if you can get into it. And often it's young men. It's interesting. The people who really love that movie are young men, more than any other group. And they, they so sometimes surprising people that, that uh, love that movie. How did you and he react to the lukewarm reception of it? Um, it? We took it in our stride. You know, you, you learn not to get to... You know, listen, when you... Certainly in my, my case, you know, I've made so many films now. I've, I've had every possible reaction. And I've made films where... I made one film in particular where I felt ashamed to have even contemplated making the film, you know. And I had to go through a whole big false kind of premiere at the Odeon Marble Arch where we all were doing the kind of self-congratulate. I mean, I've, I've been through it all. I've read reviews of films that are just damning. I've, I've, you know, and you, you get to a point where you realise that if you let that stuff hurt you, you know, then you're, you're just disabling yourself. You have to be bigger than that. So the, fountain, the thing about the fountain was we knew we had done something remarkable. Whether it was understood now or not, you know. It's a, and Arnon was well happy. I mean, Arnon, we, we kept to the 35. He was well pleased, and uh, he, again, openly um, admitted that he didn't understand what the film was about, but <laughs> he, he, he wanted to have a relationship with Darren, and he could see that Darren was... And Darren, Darren said to me at the end of that, he said, um, I know what my next movie is to be and I said what, what? And he said I want to tell the story of Noah and I went oh Christ <laughs> <laughs> I could just see it you know and Noah and the art big biblical Cecil B. DeMille um, and, uh, and uh, I kind of went yeah great that sounds really good you know 
complete silence for about a year and a half. And then he sent me this fantastic script. It's still yet to be made. Fantastic script. It's a kind of crossover between Gladiator and Lord of the Rings. Fabulous, fabulous thing. <laughs> Completely not what I expected. And just fantastic. And Universal kind of said, yeah, but, you know, we just made that movie about, what was it called, about the Noah, the comedy? No, sorry. Yeah. Something that was... No, it was... Uh, and it was, like, it bombed, you know. And they were comparing... <laughs> Darren's fantastic, kind of one of the best scripts I've ever read to that because it had Noah, you know. Oh, come on. Anyway. All right, one more question in that corner. Good beam swinging. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you very much for doing this talk this evening. I was wondering, you've just mentioned the Fountain. If you could tell us your top five films that you've been involved in and why you've uh, enjoyed making them. Uh-huh. Well, maybe your top three. Top I'll three. All right, I'll try and be quick about this. Uh, overall, let me tell you, I find uh, when a film is made, it's, it's finished for me. It's like it, it becomes separate, and it, it, it it's almost like I never uh, I never had anything to do with it. That, that's odd. I know that's odd, but it's it's. I find it very very difficult to rate films that I've been involved in in terms of the pleasure that I get from them, if that's what you mean. Um, I would say um, probably the Killing Fields is pretty high, because partly because I was I was very young relatively and I was completely inexperienced and I was bullshitting every which way, and amazingly it, we pulled it off, you know, and we, and we put on you know for eleven and a half million dollars that film cost. It's astonishing um, when you think about it. Uh, we managed to put the whole Cambodian war, and to this day, you know, um, when people talk about Cambodia, that's the film they reference. Yeah. Um, so, so that that's from a filmmaking point of view, that was that was good. Um, I, apart from that, um, in terms of the making process, I'd say the Fountain probably. I think Children of Men, difficult though it was, it was a, it was a real slugfest day in day out. Was it was it a privilege to be a part of? Um, it's easier for me to tell you the films, and I won't, that I didn't enjoy and, and look back on with, with kind of circumspection. But it's very difficult, because when you're in the making of a film, you're in a, a very strange state. Your head is in a different... You know, it's almost like you're fighting a battle, you're fighting a war, you're, you're in, a, in a false reality, and it's very hard to be objective about it until it's all over and you're kind of licking your wounds and thinking, what do we do? There's one at the back. Okay, there's one at the back, and we'll do that, and then we'll stop. Uh, briefly, what was your role in the killing fields, and how did you survive throughout the process? What were your relationships with the crew and the cast? And the well, I, I was running the show, really, basically, out in Thailand. David um, knew me, and we talked about various things, and um, he, he got me onto Chariots of Fire, and I'd as it were, excelled in Chariots of Fire. So he then said, he plunked this gigantic script, I mean, it was a huge script that Bruce Robinson had written, and said, um, have a read of that and tell me what you think. And um, I, I think I heard myself say something like, well, it's unproducible, you know. And he said, well, we're going to produce it. Um, and then he introduced me to Roland Joffe, and, um, and, and introduced Roland as, this is your biggest problem in life. <laughs> 
Um, and, and, you know, David was, a, David was a brilliant judge of character. And he could see, he, he backed me at a time when um, I, I don't think anyone else would have. And he gave me, he, he trusted that I could pull it off. And there were many moments where I wondered whether he'd, he'd made a mistake or not. But it actually worked very well. So, so I was, for me, every day was like up at four in the morning and I wasn't in bed until well after midnight and then up and then, you know, I could do that in those days. And it, it was, I was so running so scared. Fear is a, a very good thing, actually. If you don't feel afraid when you're making a film, then yeah. be careful. You should you should feel fear. You shouldn't fear drives you to do things that you might not otherwise be capable of, and and that was certainly the case on that film. Well, um, it's great to have you in this temperature, um, which is pretty impressive. Um, uh, screening the film and talking to us, we're very grateful. Next time, um, I think we should have the fountain. Now that we know that Darren Olnowski is up the road, yeah, we get Darren um, down. I'm not sure we, we want about to have it. the A team. Yeah, but we want we, but we, we might, but we, we certainly want want you back as often as possible. Thank you oh, very thank very you. much on your behalf. <laughs>